0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima Podcast. Please support us by signing up for member exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. This episode begins our study of the often overlooked final testament of Louis Sullivan's career. Before we scry that mirror, we want to extend gratitude to the members who keep this podcast going. In particular, to our new member Randy from Texture Magazine at texture.com, that's the first E written as a three, and also to longtime listener James, who recently upgraded to full intermezzo access via Patreon at lapsuslima.com. Thank you. Once in my twilight days, after Cupertino and before Boston while I was back in Chicago, I stopped by the Art Institute. I had read a small notice printed in the Chicago Reader that there was an exhibit about the last book that Louis Sullivan published. It turned out they put up the display in the basement, in a tiny side hallway and very few people managed to see it. The man whose architecture had literally created the conditions for this museum to be built had his final statement on architecture being treated as a sideshow, a beautiful ornament. But there was no irony here only the sad persistence of a more than 110-year-long pattern. His images were seen, even loved, but starkly limited in growth due to his ideas being rarely understood or even considered. The classically inspired Beaux-Arts-style Art Institute itself was created by a Boston-based firm for the 1893 World's Fair. The event that Louis Sullivan claimed set the progress of modern architecture back by half a century from its date, if not longer. While it was Sullivan's own work in Chicago's Auditorium Theater that had convinced the World's Fair committee to hold the event there, Coordination of the fair's master plan had been granted to rival architects Burnham and Root. The feeling of resentment must have stung sharply. Louis was never the diplomat in the partnership of the Adler and Sullivan firm. After the fair, on which Sullivan had publicly clashed with Daniel Burnham, Adler and Sullivan had extreme difficulty bringing in new projects and dissolved their active partnership, with 1896's guarantee building being their last major project together. Adler, who was a generation older, died in 1900, and Sullivan descended into a sweeping downward spiral of lesser and smaller commissions, lighter paychecks, and heavier drinking. He died in a hotel room in Chicago on April 14th, 1924, aged 67. But before his passing, fate allowed him two swan songs, one in terracotta, another on paper. The former Crousey music store on Chicago's northwest side still bears the facade he designed, and the principles that drove it were exemplified, preserved for those willing to understand, in his 1924 book, A System of Architectural Ornament According with a Philosophy of Man's Powers. Sadly, This book has not received much attention. It is not easy to come across. Apart from the original run in the 1920s, there was a facsimile edition released in 1967. The epilogue was a short 290-word commentary by New York Times architecture critic and pioneer of the preservation movement, Ada Louise Huxtable, in which she rightly laments that real estate and parking lots are taking their inexorable toll on the works of Louis Sullivan. She also posthumously extols the architect as a prophet and poet of modern architecture and one of its notable American pioneers. Eccentric, inspired, stubbornly original, lover and victim of life in the best tradition of his Irish heritage. The polite, waspy way of saying Sullivan was a drunk, he possessed the powerful creative flame that belongs to a limited number of men in any age. Flattering. But how did a Times critic regard his legacy and specifically the ideas in this book? Sullivan's famous and often controversial architectural ornaments, a lush, interlaced jungle of geometric, organic, and whiplash forms, enriched and defined his buildings as a kind of signature and trademark. And there we have the pigeonhole legacy as understood in the context of late 20th century modernism. Sure, form follows function was great, but what is going on with all this ornament? Preservationists on one side lauded it, high modernists on the other were embarrassed to do anything but ignore it. This discourse really does seem to be frustratingly gaseous when applied to a book purported to be about a philosophy of man's powers. Closer to the mark, but leaving the reader hanging, is Huxtable's claim that today we return to his ornament with gratitude for its undeniable sensuous beauty, seeing it as the catalyst between structure and expression that made Sullivan's famous dictum Form follows function, neither the sterile nor the limited doctrine of its later interpreters. Catalyst between structure and expression is close, but this analysis still misses the point entirely. It makes one wonder if Huxtable was too busy at the times to read the book she was asked to remark upon. A huge point overlooked is that organic architecture as Sullivan understood it explicitly included no sharp distinction between what Huxtable called structure and expression. The looming example of Fifth Avenue's Seagram's building with Mies van der Rohe's severely ornamental eye beams welded onto the exterior in order to express the structure of the large internal steel that he felt was so beautiful, may have been stuck in her mind. At the beginning of his book, Sullivan makes it plain that the yawning, artificial gap between structure and expression was something that organic architecture would simply never be encumbered with by nature of its very principle of growth. Sullivan's starting place, after some inspiring introductory quotes set in Roman-style all-caps serif, is a short little paragraph beneath a simple drawing of a germinating dicot seed. This is the image on lapsuslima.com for today's episode, and even the briefest consideration of what we quote here shows the shallowness behind the facile readings of this book. The germ, the seat of power. Above is drawn a diagram of a typical seed with two cotyledons. The cotyledons are specialized rudimentary leaves, containing a supply of nourishment sufficient for the initial stage of the development of the germ. The germ is the real thing, the seat of identity. Within its delicate mechanism lies the will to power, the function which is to seek and eventually to find its full expression in form. The seat of power and the will to live constitute the simple working idea upon which. All that follows is based, as to efflorescence. Huxtable had commented on Sullivan's half-Irish heritage. What she didn't mention was that he shared a cultural connection with Paul Clay and Johannes Itten in that his mother was a German-speaking Swiss immigrant. The philosophical lineage underlying the opening of the book is immediately clear. Understanding cotyledons, and indeed every part of a plant, as specialized leaves, derives directly from Goethe's morphology of plants. The will to power is an obvious gesture to Nietzsche, and let's not even start on that the real thing. Thus... Ding in sich. We will return to all of these connections in due time, but for now, let's focus on the core of Sullivan's metaphor of the seed germ. As we will see, he returns to the germinal icon several times in the book. It serves as his central mythic image, meant to structure the philosophy he expresses. Even though many of his drawings here, and almost all of his buildings, contain vegetal ornamentation, visual biomimicry is not the active principle at work. This is what separates him from, say, Art Nouveau, something that Huxtable also paid little heed to when she classified him as aligned with it, the code being whiplash forms. What there is in Sullivan, however, replacing visual biomimicry is genetic biomimicry, a prevalence of genotype through phenotypes. Without needing to know what DNA was, Sullivan And anyone who seriously thought about how seeds work understood that somehow the information contributing to what a plant or an animal would become was contained in the seed or the egg. This genetic reasoning becomes embodied in architecture insofar as the idea, the concept or need for a structure begins containing the information that through will to power comes into full expression in the executed form and just as with a plant the genetic impulse for oak tree or office building as a general idea becomes more particular and more specific as it draws away from the realm of ideas and grows out of and adapts into a physical context. Thus, in the organic realm, and because everything is a smooth outgrowth of idea into context, as Sullivan puts it, the will to power taking a simple working idea into bloom Any sharp line between function and ornament, between structure and expression, is altogether artificial. Each shades into the other. What Huxtable was praising Sullivan for, being a catalyst between structure and expression, was perhaps not an indictment of superficiality but merely a sound diagnosis of the mind-body schism that was especially acute in the West at that time. In our own day, we are barely beginning to grow out of that phase. It has become recently all too fashionable, for example, to praise the work of Chilean architect Alejandro Arevena, 99% invisible, did a recent podcast episode on his Half a House project, where a play-school-style pitched-roof house is left half-empty for the occupants to build into years after moving in. This strikes us as a brutally basic solution that attempts to go beyond the very real limitations of modernism In that 20th century idiom, idealized solution is deployed as a polished standard, regardless of context. Yet, Aravena's answer falls very, very far short of what Sullivan was articulating and, along with Wright, achieving, even before the European strain of modernism took flight. What Aravena is proposing with his half-a-house is much like those boulevard-lining club-stump trees you see in tropical climates. For whatever reason, city authorities indiscriminately chop off half their limbs, leaving the rest of the tree to grow as it can in a stubby, unwholesome disorder. This careless half-measure Edging coyly away from industrial modernism into a pretext for everyone do-it-yourself is hardly needed when there is already perfectly sound theory and practice for creating well-adapted architecture that is beautiful and capable of growing into people's needs. Sullivan was not the only architect to propose a way into this kind of thinking, but his so-called system of ornament was a real framework for the honing of man's powers. Join us as we peer into Sullivan's generative geometry next time on Lapsus Lima.